people in this room. If I can have everybody who's in fifth grade or younger come down at this time for our children's chat. <laughs> Good morning. How are y'all doing? All right. So do you know what Sunday it is? Palm Sunday. What does that mean? What does it mean that we celebrate Palm Sunday? So I'm going to read you a Bible verse, okay? And this is from the Old Testament. This was written before Jesus was born. Do you know how Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Do you know what he was riding? On a donkey, right? And so I want you to listen to this. Hundreds of years before Jesus got on that donkey, a prophet in Israel wrote these words. He said, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a baby donkey. All right, so Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey. Now, if you were trying to impress someone, what kind of animal would you come riding in on? A horse. A horse. A unicorn. A unicorn. <laughs> that would impress some people. Caden, what's bigger than a horse that you could ride in on? You don't know? Bigger than a giraffe. A giraffe would do the trick. <laughs> an elephant or a what a corn? Alicorn. Alicorn? It's a, a unicorn that has wings. A unicorn with wings. Anything but a baby donkey, right? So why was Jesus riding on a baby donkey? Did he need to impress everybody? No. Did he need to be like, hey, look at me, I'm a big deal? No, he just needed to get somewhere. He just, he just needed to get somewhere. I mean, it is a mode of transportation. <laughs> I, like, I like the pragmatist approach. <laughs> he did not want to show off. Yep, he was humble. And he was coming into Jerusalem to do something very important. Do you, know, do you know what that was? He was coming into Jerusalem, and within a week, he was going to be crucified. He was going to die on a cross. Why would he want to do that? Yes. To save us from our sins, to forgive us, right? And so Jesus knew why he was coming into Jerusalem, and everybody, nobody else really knew what was about to happen, but can y'all pick up these palms and just pass them around to each other? These palm fronds, right? So Jesus came into town because he knew that he was going to offer up his life for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be with God forever. And when he came into town on that baby donkey, he began to, well, the people began to celebrate. And they looked around, and they started breaking the branches off of different kinds of plants, 
and waving them around like flags. All right? So to celebrate the coming of Jesus to forgive us of our sins, y'all are going to stand up. And Izzy, can you grab the rest of those, please? And then thank you. Yes, Esther. Perfect. And if you can just, like, pass them out as you walk around. So that's what we're going to do. Here, let me have one. Can I have one? All right. So if you have any extras, just throw them out in the crowd as you walk around. Try not to hit anyone in the eye. Okay. All right. So we're going we're gonna to celebrate that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the forgiveness of our sins. Are you ready? All right, maestros. One, two, three, four. There it is. All right. Good, good. Well, thank you. So while y'all are, uh, you know, destaging, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a quick story. So many years ago, I'm not even sure how many, um, what year did you go through the pipeline? 2014, so eight years ago. Um, uh, uh, one of our elders named Destin LeBlanc, he and his wife Kathy moved to Florida, and they were attending church in Florida, and the pastor called up a young man and said, we're going to pray for Alex, he's going to San Antonio, um, and you know he's going into the military, we're going to pray for him. And so Destin uh, walks up to Alex after the service, he says, hey, I know a great church in San Antonio, um, if you're interested, and Alex's like, yes, I am, that would be great. And so Destin puts us in touch by email, and I send a very warm, welcoming email to Alex, and 
never heard back from him. And I was like, okay, well, he's, you know, whatever. And uh, about six months later, these three young airmen walk into Hope Church, and they're worshiping with us. And after the service, I went over to introduce myself. And what I didn't know was Jim Harris had already, Jim Harris is another one of our elders who's now in Florida. Do you see a trend here? (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Um, But uh, he's, yeah. So Jim had gone over to these three young men after the service and said, uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, what do y'all do? And they're like, well, we're in the Air Force. He's like, okay, well, I used to be in the Army, and uh, if you're interested, I could, you know, I'd be willing to do a Bible study with y'all. And they were like, oh. That'd be great. Thanks. And so a couple minutes later, I walk over, introduce myself to the three young men, and I say, what do y'all do? And they go, oh, we're in the Air Force. I'm like, well, what do you do in the Air Force? And they said, well, we're air traffic controllers. And these guys are like chiseled specimens of human beings. And I looked at one of them, and I go, you are not the nerd in the box at the airport. That's not, nope, I'm not buying that. And their specialty, let's just say, is a little more complicated than that. We'll just put it that way. But we are in good hands. I'll just, if you need to know that, our country is in good hands. So um, they, uh, I said to these guys after a, you know, sort of, pellet, you know, like, tried to figure out what they were doing. I said, I don't know if y'all would be interested or not, but I, I would, you know, I'd be love to do like I could come to Lackland and do a Bible study with you guys and they all look at each other like where are we what is happening why is everyone inviting us to a Bible study what's going on I didn't know that Jim had said that to them and but they were like yeah that'd be great and that guy over there said the same thing and so Jim Harris and I would drive to Lackland every Wednesday and we would sit down with these guys and just open the word and pray and share and um we had no idea at the time like how intense their particular specialty was in the Air Force, but it was just a great little season of uh, relating to these young guys and sharing God's word. And uh, eventually, um, that kind of played out. The the airmen that were in the Bible study, they all they're going through a training process, and when they're finished, well, they go to Florida. You see that, yeah, that's how it works. Um, and so uh, eventually the, the, the supply of airmen that wanted to do the Bible study kind of disappeared, and we hadn't done that for a while. Uh, the last one that we did, uh, John Davern, who's somewhere in the building, did, was, in the, was doing the Bible study with me, um, and then that class graduated and we didn't have anybody left. So um, anyway unbelievable that you're here Landon I'm so I'm so blessed so Landon was with Alex and whoever the third party was I don't know who it was do you Bella Bella, that's right Bella Sparza yeah or I'm not supposed to say his full name yeah it's classified Uh, but uh, um, yeah they were here eight years ago at Hope and Landon's back feels great so welcome and welcome Rachel yeah very good and the rest of you some of whom I haven't really met yet but that's okay all right is that good enough
Good enough introduction. And I don't normally pick on visitors, so that's not something I normally, you're not a visitor. You're a regular now. Yeah, all right. Um, let me open us with a word of prayer, and we will get into the worshiping God through his word together this morning. God, our Father, we thank you for this space that you create in our week where we can come together and worship you and lay our hearts before you. We ask that you would open our hearts as we open your word, that you would speak to us this morning, that your word would be fresh and alive in our hearts, that you would draw us to understand what it is we need to give to you in terms of our our sins or our fears or disappointments or any aspect of life that is in need of transformation through your word. And Lord, as we do that, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We lift up those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift up those whom we know and love who are sick or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we pray your healing mercies over them. We think of Dean Johnson and Dean Morris and Joshua Johnson and Jack Fliss and Yolanda and Mike Clifton and others whom we know and love who are in need of your healing mercies, and we just pray you would pour those out on your people. We lift up our country, our leaders at every level of government elected and appointed, and we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform. We pray that you would watch over and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. We pray for our military families who are separated from each other due to their years of service. We just pray that you would keep both those who are away and those who are at home close to your heart and close to each other during their times of separation. We lift up those who've returned home changed as a result of their service. We pray that you would use us, your church, to reach out to them, to pour out your grace, your mercy, and your healing power upon them, that mind, body, and soul, they would be restored to the people you created them to be. And Lord, we lift up your church here at Hope and around the world, asking that your word would continue to go forth through your people and that it would not come back to you empty. And we think of those churches that we are connected to through our denomination and through our missions giving. We pray for them especially this morning. Um, We lift up our sister church in Kamahuani, Cuba, and we just pray you would pour out your blessing upon them. We lift up Roberto, who serves in youth ministry there, and his wife, uh, Eumis Ladies, and we just pray that she and their newborn son would remain healthy and uh, grow according to your will, and just that you, your blessing would be upon that young family. Lord, we um, pray for the church plants in Katy, in Austin, and in New Braunfels that are ongoing in our state, and we just pray your blessing over those young works. Be with us now by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, We are in a series of messages that is sort of hitting the high points through the book of Isaiah. And we started in chapter 1, 
we wanted to be in chapter the end of chapter 52 and the beginning of chapter 53 for Easter Sunday. That's next week. So we're going to be kind of just skimming a few chapters this week just to kind of cover the, the themes that are present in this section of the book. We have seen that the book can be viewed in three parts, three themes that have major emphasis in, in three different parts of the book, but those same three themes are woven throughout the book, and quite masterfully, actually. Um, and so that first theme is this idea that our sin causes separation, separation between ourselves and others and separation between ourselves and God. And then the second theme that we see developed in the book of Isaiah is that there is someone who will come, who will bring salvation for us from the consequences of those sins. And that that, that theme of salvation is woven throughout the book, just as that theme of separation is woven throughout the book. And then the third portion of the book, which we have not gotten to yet, um, but is also woven back through the pages, is this idea that God gives his people the promise of eternal sanctuary. This idea that we can be in what the, the Hebrews called a state of rest or Sabbath with God now. We can have that peace that transcends understanding, as the Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament. And so we've been looking at these three themes. We are now in the second portion of the book of Isaiah that talks, that really is beginning to develop and emphasize this theme of salvation. And somewhere, starting in around chapter 40, 41, 42, Isaiah begins to develop this this metaphor of the servant. And I've tried to explain this in past weeks. I'm just going to hit the high points right now. That the servant has, there are two different applications of that. It's not always the same thing. And what I mean by that is sometimes when Isaiah is writing about God's servant or the servant or his servant, he's talking about all of the people of God either all of Israel or all of the church, you are included in that servant idea. Then, at other times, he's talking about his servant in a very pointed way that is sort of boiled down to a single person. And that person is the Messiah, the promised one, who will come and bring salvation for God's people. And so, You'll see in, this, in the readings I've chosen for this week, you'll see both of those examples. I'm not going to stop and point them out to you when I read them. I'm just going to read through these excerpts. But you'll see in one case, the first case, it's all of God's people, his church. In the second case, it's specifically the Messiah, but it's the same term, my servant. All right, here we go. We're going to look at excerpts from chapters 42, 49, 51 and 52, because I'm that crazy. All right, beginning in Isaiah chapter 44, I'm going to just, these are just clippings that will hopefully give you some context of what Isaiah is saying in these chapters. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. 
I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And then from chapter 49, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But Zion said, I'm sorry, also in chapter 49. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion On the son of her womb, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And then from Isaiah chapter 51, verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And then from Isaiah chapter 52, two verses. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then I just threw in uh, Zechariah 9, 9, the not, well, for the sake of space, I skipped the first little portion in that passage, but you'll get the idea. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right. So when I was in college, I had the opportunity to 
take a semester and go abroad. And I was actually on a ship during this time. Um, and the ship visited various countries around the world. Um, and at one point, I, was, I found myself in Hong Kong. And I took a flight to Beijing, China. And from there, among the tours that they put you on, um, I was taken one day to the Great Wall. And I remember standing there, and as far as the eye can see in any direction, well, in either, just, just two directions, really, that wall just keeps going. And it goes over hills, and it goes over mountains, and it just keeps going. And you look the other way, and it just keeps going. And if you walk far enough, you can get to portions of the wall, or you could then, that were still in ruins. They've rebuilt most of it. Um, and you can see, like, literally the original stones with the original mortar kind of stuck to them, you know, laying in piles of rubble. But as you look beyond it, that pile goes on as far as the eye can see. Because at some point, some emperor of China got tired of Mongolian hordes coming down from the north and devastating their crops, fields, and villages. So he said, let's build a wall, right? Um, and I thought as I'm standing there looking at this pile of rubble on kind of this, the far end of where we were, like what would it have been like for the first guy who took a wheelbarrow full of bricks out into the wilderness, dumped them out, and started, you know, slap, slap, slather, place. What would that have been like? Stupid emperor. He's making me do this stupid thing. And like, stupid. This isn't going to stop Genghis Khan. Come on. Right? But over time, they, they built one of the eight wonders of the world. Um, it's the only man-made structure that is singularly visible from space. Um, wow. And I remember just standing there being in awe of the, really the audacity of someone to just suggest a project like that, much less the willingness to fulfill it over centuries and generations and even multiple dynasties, that wall continued to be built to, in, to the extent that it exists today. That sense of marvel is, and wonder and just wow is exactly what Isaiah is trying to get us to evoke in, within ourselves in this passage. Um, I'm going to reread one verse for you. It's verse 28 of Isaiah chapter 44. And this is God speaking, who in verse 24 says, I am the Lord, I made everything. I'm the one who spread out the earth by myself. And then verse 28, I am the Lord who 
says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So let me try to, let me try to put this in perspective. When Isaiah was alive, the biggest threat to the existence of his people group was the Assyrian army. In fact, the kings under which Isaiah served were all terrified that Assyria would roll in, take Jerusalem, and kill everybody because that's what they did. Isaiah says to the people with whom he's living, the king of Assyria is not what you need to be concerned about. First of all, you need to be concerned about your own sin. That's a bigger deal. Secondly, when you ignore me in dealing with your own sin, the guy you need to be worried about isn't born yet. And he's going to come from Babylon, not Assyria. And he's going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And the way the Babylonians rolled was they they would take over a, a capital and they would take anybody that had any value and they would carry them back to their capital. But then they would look around the landscape and they would say, well, what, what is important to these people? Let's make sure before we leave, we raise it to the ground. We burn it and, and sort of like erase it from the face of the earth. What are the cultural icons of this people group? Well, we're going to desecrate them. We're going to destroy them. We're going to break the will of this culture, and, and they will be assimilated into our, what is it, Borg? Yes, you would know that. All right, so that's how the Babylonians rolled, and so sure enough, a 100 years after Isaiah, 79, 75, whatever, a long time after Isaiah passes away, the Babylonians roll in, and they conquer Jerusalem, and they carry off everyone to Babylon, including a guy named Daniel. You might have heard of him. Um, After that, Babylon gets conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians, their king's name was Cyrus. So can we just hold on for a minute? 150 years before Cyrus says to to the people of Israel, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple, the centerpiece of your culture and your religion and your identity. 150 years before that, Isaiah names the guy. Uh, Whoa. Um, There are some who theorize that that some of this wasn't written until... uh, People got back to Jerusalem. Even if that's the case, it doesn't change the fact this is the inspired word of God, and it doesn't change the fact that everything that Isaiah predicted before this has come true. Unedited, unbelievable, just marvel at the capacity of this prophet through the power of the Spirit of God to not only see what's coming, but to frame it in terms of what's important. That we deal with our own sin. That we look to our Savior, the Messiah. That we 
claim God's eternal promise of sanctuary in his presence. These are the things that matter. These are the things that matter the most. And these are the things at which we are to marvel. So let's start working our way through these passages and looking at them in terms of what God wants from us. And I will just begin with this idea that we are to be a people who live in a perpetual state of marvel. That we are to marvel first and foremost at God's promises. This idea that God looks over future history and says to his people, I've got this. I'm in control. I love you. I will work all of this towards the good of my people. And so here we have this idea that God has a redemptive heart. That is, we are to marvel at the fact that our God is a redeemer. That's who he is. It's what he wants. It's how he works. He seeks to bring us back. We are to know that our, our God, our redeemer, remembers us. He has not forgotten us. He is our creator. He named us. He knows us by name, as we saw last week. Um, he's in control. So we're to know that he remembers us, and we're to know that he forgives us. So I don't know about you, I don't remember all of my sins. That would take up a lot of brain space. But I do know, I do know that my heart is as wayward as any other human being's heart. That I, I stray, my mind strays, I, I get distracted, I do bad things, I say bad things. I have a sin problem. God says to me and to you, I've got this. My specialty is redemption. It's bringing you back from that state of confusion and devastation. It's rebuilding. It's renewing. It's restoring hope and life in your heart. And so we are to be a people who marvel at this God who fulfills his promises. This God who has a redemptive heart. This God whose word is restorative. We are to marvel at the restorative nature of God's word. So, the people to whom this was written are returning from captivity by decree of Cyrus, King Cyrus of the Persians and Medes. They are returning to a pile of rubble. There are animals grazing and hiding in, in the cracks of the rubble that was once the centerpiece of their culture. Their temple is a pile of rocks. And their job is to begin to rebuild. This is the God who causes a foreign king to issue a decree to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. 
And this God is always, from his heart, redemptive. That's who he is. And so we are to marvel at his restorative word to trust the word of our all-powerful God and to trust the word of our all-knowing God. This God, whom we serve, has got this. He's not just in control. He's in command. We tend to forget this and ask questions like what we see in chapter 49. Um, Well, it's not a question. Well, yes, no, it's not. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. If you've never felt that way, I hope you never do. (laughs) But it is such a common sense in this life that where is God? What, what did he did he blink? Is he is he napping? What's going on? Why is this happening? And of course we know that's not how he works. He doesn't forget, he doesn't forsake. He always remembers, he always moves. But we feel at times like he has forsaken us. What were among Jesus' final words on the cross? Anyone? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is such a deeply human expression of anxiety, of feeling lost and alone. And God says, I'm here. I have not gone anywhere. And my best work is yet to come. Because when life is in a pile of rubble, I'm the God who rebuilds. I'm the God who restores. I'm the God who brings back hope and life from the grave, literally. And so, we are to marvel at his promises, but to look more specifically at the fulfillment of those promises in the Messiah. The one whom he promised would come and make all things right. We are to marvel at our Messiah, to marvel at his hands, chapter 49, verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Um, what? What a strange thing to say. Am I wrong? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I'm sorry, that's odd. Who does that? What does that mean? And this is one of those bizarre places in Scripture that there's this reaching back by Isaiah, by the author here, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we are to take God's word and lash it to the back of our hand, to our forehead. We're to nail it to the doorpost of our home and the gates leaving our property so that everything we think about, everything we put our hand to, everywhere we go and every time we come home 
It's all grounded in the Word of God. And Isaiah sort of flips the hand here. And he says, you are engraven on my hand. We won't know the full meaning of that claim until Christ. Until we see the marks on his hand. Until he, as our Messiah, fulfills the word of God, fulfills the promises, brings about our salvation and our eternal hope. We are to marvel at these hands that are spread out for all nations and that are marked for the forsaken. Two things in here in this, this section of, of 40, chapter 49 that are just mind-blowing. It is too light a thing, 49.6, that you should be my servant, and I'll just paraphrase here, just to bring Israel back. That's not enough. That's not a big enough, that's not a God plan. What does a God plan look like? Um, look around you. This is what a God plan looks like. You, you, we, we should not be talking about Israel. Newsflash, I'm not Jewish. You probably are not Jewish. You might be, that's great. The fact that we are talking here on this land, in this geographical region of the world, that we are talking about a Jewish Messiah, you are the fulfillment of this prophecy. You and I, all of us. This is mind-blowing. Why on earth would we be talking about a Jewish Messiah in 2022 in San Antonio, Texas? Because redeeming Israel was not a big enough plan. God says, think bigger. I, I want my love to flood the earth. I want all kinds of people to hear my redemptive voice that I love, that I restore, that I rebuild, that I move into devastation and bring about hope. And so we are part of the, fulfill, the fulfillment of all of this and we are the fellowship of the forsaken. Did you hear what came just before the hands, the palms of my hands? But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then in verse 15, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. These walls were rubble at the time this was heard by God's people in their, their return to Jerusalem. And this is who God is. We are to marvel at our Messiah, at his hands and at his works, the result of his work on the cross to be specific. Chapter 51 tells us who we are. We are the ransomed. That 
means that you and I were taken captive by our sin. God had to work out a plan for our redemption. The negotiation there was that his son would die and pay the penalty for our transgression and that we could then be set free and restored into right relationship with God. You and I were ransomed for a price and it cost us nothing. It cost Christ his life. Therefore, we are to sing with joy and gladness. The, the joy and gladness of being set free, of being redeemed, of being made into a people who don't deserve the grace they have found. We are to sing with joy and gladness, and we are to find peace and strength in our Messiah. That whatever life may bring, we can know that our God reigns. And so when we're standing in that pile of rubble, we can see something that's not there. A truth that transcends. A grace that has been made ours, not because of what we deserve, but because of what our Messiah has done for us. So we marvel at his hands. We marvel at the results of his work on the cross. And we marvel at his humility. It's a fascinating um, sort of putting this passage from Zechariah right up next to these themes from Isaiah. You can see they held the same perspective on the world. And Zechariah says, you know, you're king, you're Messiah, the one who's going to bring salvation to your heart. Who is he? He's coming with righteousness and salvation. And, and the, the text there, it, it really isn't translating very well, but it should say he's carrying with him righteousness and salvation for you. It's not, it's not that he is righteous and, and receiving salvation. It's that he's coming with, a, with a, a load in his hands that he wants to deliver to each of our hearts. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We are to marvel not just at the hands of Christ and the results of his work, but at his humility. This king is different. He is someone that we would not anticipate. He is truly for everyone. That this king who will come, who is our Messiah, he's not coming on a big white horse. He's coming on a baby donkey. His feet will be dragging in the dust as he rides into town. It, I, I, I'm kind of a, I've got a lot like a, like, I don't know, a torqued mind. I actually think the whole Palm Sunday thing is hilarious. Like a, a five foot two Jewish guy on a baby donkey dragging his feet through the dust on his way into town. 
He's saying something, right? That's a statement. And I think people were rejoicing and kind of like going, what? What is this? You know, and so it's sort of like a, a party with a message. And it's really simple. This Messiah, he's not out of touch. He's not in an ivory tower. He's not in a castle. His toes are dragging in the dust. He's that close to you. He's right here. What Christ has demonstrated to us, big, big God plan. And no one is so far gone that his love cannot redeem. That's who he is. Father God, we lift our hearts to you. We praise you. We marvel at your word, at your work, at the humility of your son, at the, the length to which he was willing to go to engrave us on the palms of his hands. Lord, we are in awe. And we are in gratitude because we have received a grace we did not deserve. You have come through your Son to deal with our sin, to take away the separation between man and God, to give us a salvation from our sin, to set us free where we can have joy and gladness in the knowledge of your love. And to return us every day to the hope and love of the Messiah whose hands are spread out for us, for all kinds of people, that your love might continue to spread on this earth, that more and more voices will be added to the chorus of praise to your holy name. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.